it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talked. Ready and willing to hunt a great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Tell the story you know. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. This is different. This is about something. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. I gave you a second chance. How wealth and influence can crush a man. Are you hoping I might absolve you of such a personal betrayal? You made yourself court jester. Nobody but nobody makes a monkey out of William Randolph first! You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mank. Mr. Mankiewicz. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today, we finally are here. We've arrived at the moment. We made it. Our most anticipated movie, at least mine, of the year. It was definitely up there for me, too. And I think, as a disclaimer, I'm going to hold back my comments, reactions, opinions until the very end when we're kind of done talking about the movie, the history, because there is so much more to talk about before I think that you can truly understand what Mank is and where it came from. A lot of people are probably wondering, where do you start? Because once you hear Mank, you hear that, oh, it's this guy, Herman Mankiewicz's nickname. It was about Citizen Kane. It's about the writing of Citizen Kane. You know, do I have to watch Citizen Kane? What should I know about the history? So I think I've seen it twice now. Mank largely undertakes the history of the time more than Citizen Kane itself. Like you said in last week's pod, it does help to see Citizen Kane because a lot of the dialogue that they mention in these really quick one-liners are about Citizen Kane or come to fruition there. So Mank, I think, deals more with the politics of the time and the players therein. And I think knowing the history of the 30s into the 40s, what the film industry was like, how movies were made, how differently films are made and processed today, I think will help largely with your understanding of the movie. I completely agree with all of that. So we will be spoiling Mank. There's always that conversation of can you really spoil historical events but in this case you kind of can because it's a loose interpretation we will get there but to start out let's go into some background so talking about Hollywood history at the time I think like you mentioned the viewing experience is enhanced completely if you have any bit of knowledge about these important players and studios that were around Back then, we had the Big Five. So the Big Five referred to Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, Paramount, MGM, and RKO. Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox don't really come into play in Mank that much. We do have a little note with Warner Brothers in the movie, but we won't really go into these as they aren't really covered too much. The first one I would say that we really see is Paramount. So when you're watching Mank, that's the first back lot that you're on. And that's where the Mankiewicz brothers were. So Herman Mankiewicz signed a contract at Paramount, and that's kind of where he started his film career. I think an aside here, the name Paramount doesn't really come into play in the movie. Mm -hmm. Another note is that writers would jump between studios to find work, and it just is kind of different than how films are written today. The scene when they go meet David O. Selznick made Rebecca, made very expensive movies. You'll see a scene where they have people like Ben Hecht and... And Charles Letterer and both of the Mankiewicz brothers, David O. Selznick. It's really fun. I just loved that. 
Next up, we have MGM, which stands for Metro Goldwyn Mayer. We spend the most time at MGM. So quick little tidbit about MGM and where that name comes from. It originated with Marcus Lowe, who founded the People's Vaudeville Company, founded in Cincinnati, Ohio. This ended up becoming Lowe's Incorporated, which is a Cineplex company known around the world today. But this company used to show Nickelodeon films back in the early 1900s. And so Lowe bought Metro Pictures, Goldwyn Pictures, and Mayer Pictures, who were all separate film companies between 1919 and 1924. And this is what formed MGM. So in the hierarchy here, Louis B. Mayer was the head of production from California. Louis B. Mayer, you will see quite a bit in Mank, played by mm-hmm. Arliss Howard. So the two main guys at MGM at the time, you had Louis B. Mayer and you had Irving Thalberg. They were business partners at MGM and the whole thing about MGM was this idea that it's where stars ruled. Most importantly, Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg didn't care about auteurs. We'll come back to auteurs later. They just wanted to make money and make movies that moved people emotionally. You can think of Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg as good cop, bad cop. Mayer was the businessman. He saw a direct correlation between profits and stars from his days when he used to run a theater. And he based his business model on that. So he began to assemble tons of stars for MGM. And because we're here, we should note that Mayer was the one who spearheaded the creation of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And he's the reason behind how this got started because he thought that if his stars got Oscars, they would remain loyal to him. So this will come up not so much with the Oscars, but this way of thinking that Mayer has will come up often in Mank. And this idea that Ampass being this appreciation of film is not how it started. Mm -hmm. It actually started from Mayer because at the time, again, this is a little tidbit in Mank, but the writers and other crew members were starting to film guilds Mm -hmm. and they wanted to form these labor groups that Mayer didn't like. He saw it as a loss of profit for the company. Mm -hmm. So Mayer started Ampass or what was going to become that to try to distract them from forming the guilds, which is so cracked. That's like... <laughs> Louis B. Mayer is cracked. He, When you just like hear about what he did and you're just like thinking to yourself, you know, I've had this realization over the years that I became a lot happier when I realized that the Oscars don't go to necessarily who should win all the time. I think Parasite is a different case that sometimes it works out that way. But most often Oscars go to who has the best campaign. It's all about money and marketing mm-hmm. dollars. And Louis B. Mayer started it this way it was a ploy to retain the loyalty of his stars and to stop people from unionizing that's crazy my ideas that have strengthened over the years of how little i should actually care about who actually wins and focusing on smaller award ceremonies that have more nominees that i think really deserve the year's attention Mm -hmm. just certifies how political the oscars really are and this is where it came from Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yes it changed over time you know it hasn't been this restrictive ideal from history but the fact that this is how they started in the 20s and eventually formed and became the first academy awards and all the founders it's (sighs) something i didn't know and in research just totally blew me away yeah it really is just like a what moment also when you watch mank and you see how louis b mayer is portrayed you just think to yourself oh well Of course, it's this way, and this is how it happened. Mm -hmm. Totally villainized. Mm -hmm. 
The other half of the partnership was Irving Thalberg. So Thalberg was a lot younger than Louis B. Mayer. He was charming. He was this boy wonder in the partnership. He was incredibly creative and he had that type of reputation. He actually invented test screenings for audiences. So this was his contribution to the film world and to MGM. He was the one who would do test screenings and say like, this doesn't work, this works. And he kind of created the role of creative producer in that way too. So bringing, I think, this partnership between Thalberg and Mayer, having these the two sides of the coin, the creative and the business sides really made the partnership work. Ultimately, Louis B. Mayer, he's the name that you know, I think because of the way that the conglomerate goes, but in this partnership, Thalberg was the one because he was the good side of the partnership in a lot of ways. It took a while for Mayer to get out from behind his shadow and he really didn't until he died. So little tidbits about Thalberg here. They mention F. Scott Fitzgerald in Mank Mm -hmm. and Fitzgerald's Last Tycoon yeah. is about Irving Thalberg. Separately, Ampass at the Governor's Awards still every year presents the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, which highlights creative producers. So his memory is, is still very much alive in the film community and how film history remembers him. And he was also married to the actress at the time, Norma Shearer, who you'll hear in Mank Sometimes they'll reference Norma. That's who they're talking about. Going down the list too, we have RKO. RKO was a studio that I would say made artistic pictures that didn't make money. That I think is the way to understand them kind of in comparison to MGM. RKO though is important because this is the studio that gave Orson Welles at 24 creative autonomy to make anything he wanted. And more importantly than that, he got the right to final cut, which I feel like is the dream for any filmmaker. And Mm -hmm. RKO, I think I would compare today to almost like an Annapurna. So a studio that just basically bleeds money, but they'll give money to filmmakers to make things that other studios wouldn't. So the films of Paul Thomas Anderson were Annapurna. Barry Jenkins has worked with Annapurna. So that's kind of how I visualize it in my mind as something for today. This is pretty unheard of outside of... independent cinema, which I think this would classify as. What is your relationship with Orson Welles as a filmmaker? I'm just kind of neutral. I've seen Touch of Evil and Citizen Kane. I think this idea of him being this untouchable, perfect filmmaker is just a bit overrated. I don't know. I don't don't really have like super strong opinions and I don't think I should or could base that off of Mank. Oh yeah, definitely not. And the villainization of him in this film. Why do you ask this? Do you have like a love for Wells? I do. I really love him. (laughs) I love Citizen Kane, but I also like The Magnificent Ambersons a lot, which I don't know if you would like that one, but that was his follow-up to Citizen Kane. That's on my list. I've never seen it. Yeah, I love The Lady from Shanghai. I really like that one too. I think that with Wells, what's so interesting, and I've always been fascinated by this idea of his War of the Worlds radio show and how he scared people into Mm -hmm. thinking that aliens were actually invading the planet. I do think too, like having read about him and his time as a theater performer and director, I think maybe this will make sense to listeners and for both of us is that I think I feel the way about Wells, the way that you feel about Chaplin. Okay. Is this like... I 
think that would make sense. Pioneer, <laughs> trailblazing genius of a person. With a problematic history and backstory, maybe. But I, but I don't... <laughs> okay, I guess exactly. I find the things that Orson Welles does that people would think are problematic, I find hilarious. Like his commentary on other directors, I just find funny. Anyway, we'll get to Welles when we talk more about the specific version of Welles that we get in Mank. So just another thing on RKO, there is a quote in Mank from Joe Mankiewicz, uh-huh. who, when he's talking to Herman, says, I hear you're hunting dangerous game, which immediately for me triggered the most dangerous game. Me too. Which is this idea that, you know, you're people hunting people for fun. But RKO actually made the first adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game in 1932, which was produced by Selznick. And this was actually made on the same sets as King Kong, also made by RKO, at night, which I thought was super interesting. That is really interesting. Well, again, I keep like saying, we'll get to the movie, we'll get to the movie, we'll get to the movie. But things like that make me think like this script is really good. I do really like the script. Yeah, there are just so many layers and so much depth in every single line that I think again helps understand where it's coming from and give you kind of like a roadmap to the studios too. Citizen Kane sadly it ultimately lost money for RKO and brought down the hammer of William Randolph Hearst. If you don't know who he is you've definitely read something that has come from his power I would say in creation. So he was a newspaper tycoon, politician, billionaire but I think think in the context of this you have to know that he had so much power wealth and influence and control over the press so he founded cosmopolitan pictures and had his mistress marion davies who we'll also see in mank she signed a 500 a week contract and he just started bankrolling her pictures as they say in mank and he got to decide marion davies's career but a little bit more about hearst so back to what you were talking about mgm in 1923 he joined forces with Samuel Goldwyn of Samuel Goldwyn Pictures, who was struggling at the time. Lowe's then bought Samuel Goldwyn Pictures, and then it was folded into MGM. So that's how Hearst became involved with film, and specifically with MGM. He named Marion president of Cosmopolitan Pictures. So they were this duo. He was much older than her. They were together for a very long time. They had like a 30-year affair. Were never married. Wow. He named her president. So that she could make her own money. And under the deal, MGM turned 30% over to Hearst and to Davies. So they just continued to make money off of this relationship that they had with MGM. And L.B. Mayer made this deal because it gave him press. He had full, unlimited access to Hearst Publications. So MGM got more press than any other studio. So if you think like, oh, why would you cut this deal with Hearst and Davies as Louis B. Mayer? It's because he was always thinking of just like how to continue to get his pictures out in front of everybody and to make more money. Davies, I think, is also really interesting. I really loved learning about her and it made me really sad because she started out as this chorus girl and a model and her career became completely overshadowed by her relationship with Hearst and she really wanted to be a comedian and use her comedic talents, but Hearst didn't want her to. And part of this is because Hearst, you know, being this like older man who's having an affair with this younger woman, he thought that it was best for her if 
people saw her as this virtuous woman and not as a comedian like she wanted to be. He mm-hmm. wanted her to make these pictures that were written, you know, about literary icons and historical figures. And that just wasn't what she wanted. He wanted her in more expensive costume dramas and it makes you sad when you think about like the relationship back then and how it worked and certainly she benefited from it she got to make all these movies because of Hearst but at the same time he always had his thumb on everything and eventually like Hearst pulled the support away from MGM moved to Warner Brothers but eventually after Hearst company closed Marion just retreats to San Simeon their big estate where they live and she just stops and she just could never really win over people because everything was under his control there's an interesting dynamic between actual Marion Davies and singer version in Citizen Kane and I don't know how much is factual versus history Citizen Kane and Mank. I think there are slightly different interpretations mm-hmm. of her character and person, but it is interesting to see how she carries over and that he really takes over her career and she wants to do one thing. And in Citizen Kane, he builds an opera house so she can perform, but she's like, very unhappy with how it's going and she's not performing to her or her vocalist coach's satisfaction and like you said she retreats she just kind of falls apart and isolates herself in Xanadu slash San Simeon right what I read was really interesting is that you can still visit Hearst Castle south of Monterey in California which would be such a fun road trip (laughs) to go on (laughs) I know I was like that would be such a fun trip Before we get fully into Citizen Kane, just the connection to Marion Davies, she wrote an autobiography and Wells actually wrote the foreword and he confirmed in the foreword, or rather denied, that Susan Alexander Kane was based on Marion Davies. Now that's a little sus Mm. to me, but (laughs) you know, it's all all in the Which is the same thing in Mank. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mank says to Marion, you know, it's not you, but it's clearly at least a version of her. Definitely. Right. He says something along the lines of it's not her. It's what people who don't know her think of her. Talking more about Citizen Kane. What was your relationship to Citizen Kane before Mank? When did you first watch it? How do you feel about it? I think we had been assigned to watch this for some film class. Mm-hmm. So it's been probably eight plus years since I've seen it. Didn't have like super fond memories of loving it, but I rewatched it last week on HBO Max and actually really loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it totally holds up and it's such a quick film, which is mirrored in Mank, Mm -hmm. that I think it holds up. I mean, the editing is superb and the story is just so dense, but it's well-written. And I think if one of those things, including the cinematography or the acting, you know, other components as well, if one of those had failed, it wouldn't have held up and been this almost untouchable movie that in terms of film history is highly regarded as you know quote the best or the most impressive movie of all time which is such a lofty thing to say but Mm -hmm. I think in a way holds up so you must love Citizen Kane I do love Citizen Kane. I think one of my favorite things about this time right now, actually, not of course 2020. God, there's nothing really good about 2020. But one thing I've really loved is just the idea that hopefully right now, and maybe this is me, you know, just getting too excited or being too optimistic. But I love the idea that a new generation of people will be watching Citizen Kane for the first time and hopefully learning that it isn't this inaccessible thing that they maybe once thought it was. And I think that a lot of times, you know, Citizen Kane 
pain when you hear that you know regardless I think of your level of understanding of film history you think of it as the greatest film of all time because it's on the top AFI list it's on the sight and sound pole like all Mm. those things you hear and you think well is it really the greatest film of all time they start to Mm. doubt it because everyone says it but I think that you said it was untouchable I think that's totally true and I think that you also mentioned the other elements in it Greg Tolan the cinematographer Robert Wise was editing Bernard Herman did the score who I know I've mentioned before and when you think of all of that and all of those parts coming together and the fact that you had this deal that Orson Welles got at the time that he could do anything that he wanted through RKO and it turned out to be Citizen Kane it worked like it's unprecedented and Mm -hmm. it will never happen again those circumstances I just feel like that makes it so remarkable and just something that no one else will ever be able to do and I think that's part of the reason why I do like Wells so much and why I'll get into I think my opinions with how Wells is portrayed here but also how people are reacting to this movie about Wells I think also another thing about Citizen Kane that I really love and why I recommend it to people besides it just like oh it's the best and oh it's Wells and all of these things is that it's electric it's so full of energy and so full of ideas and different themes and is made in a way that just is so creative and sometimes when you see a movie from the 40s with a two-hour runtime you think okay this is gonna be a slog maybe and it's not one it moves really quickly like you said so I'm really glad that you liked Mm -hmm. it I definitely didn't know the depths of the history when I first saw this and maybe that's why I didn't appreciate it as much and what we're communicating today I still didn't know when I saw it last week but I think with any level of knowledge of film history and these people I think you can still appreciate this movie now that we've talked about Citizen Kane let's talk about this Raising Kane business and the authorship issue that is discussed in Mank. Mank was written by David Fincher's dad, who in early drafts of the movie largely based his script on Raising Kane, which was written by Pauline Kael in 1971 in The New Yorker. It was released in two parts. It's this 50,000 word essay slash short novel (laughs) that got published, which brought back the conversation and controversy of who is Citizen Kane written by and was it Orson Welles or was it Herman Mankiewicz or was it a combination? So that's kind of where Mank started. And the final version that we see on Netflix and that David Fincher directed doesn't really concern itself as much with the writings of Pauline Kael, but... I think it's still important to know. I started reading this and I was like, there's no way I'm finishing this by the time we (laughs) do this. It's like a short book, but you know, little Cliff Notes version. I think it's really interesting. Pauline Kael is such an interesting figure to film history. She is a great critic. Is she a great scholar? I'm going to say in this case, no. Her central claim was that Wells didn't write the script and stole the words from Herman Mankiewicz. I think she considers Herman Mankiewicz to be this genius who is largely uncelebrated and maybe misunderstood. She claims that this original script called American, which you'll also see in Mank, that that's the working title, was written completely in Victorville, Mm -hmm. the ranch where Herman J. Mankiewicz is staying with John Hausman and Rita Alexander. And she's saying that it was written there and they were the only ones there 
and to some extent that's true but she also paints wells to be this like villain with this towering reputation who's this wonderkin genius and some of that's true i find this piece to be just like so mean and dishonest it's been debunked i think my biggest thing when i look at it is orson wells when you watch citizen kane shares a title card with his cinematographer. I think if he was that big of an egomaniac, he wouldn't share a title card with anybody. I think it's also important to note here that Herman Mankiewicz signed on to this movie knowing that he wouldn't have credit for the script. He was kind of hired as a script doctor to fix this. And I'm not sure I like really understand how he came into this role of writing the script, if that's what he knew he would be. I guess it's kind of hard to explain, but that's so important in this controversy of who wrote the film Mm -hmm. essentially another thing to note about raising cane you mentioned that pauline kale was this bad journalist and she was in this scenario because she interviewed multiple people but orson wells was alive and she didn't interview him for this piece so it's not like an all-seeing perspective that she's trying to argue both sides of the story no so that was definitely unfair and i agree with you on that yeah i feel like not interviewing him is because she knows what he's going to say, and it doesn't fit her argument. Yeah. The thing, too, is Peter Bogdanovich wrote something called The Kane Mutiny, which was in Esquire, and Orson Welles' secretary vouched for him and basically just said, well, then what was I writing? Like, I was working on something. I was typing something. What was it if I didn't do anything? Another guy, Howard <laughs> Suber, told Bogdanovich that he was actually writing about Citizen Kane at the same time. He approached Kale about collaborating, and he submitted an essay to her, mm-hmm. and... He never heard back from her at all. His opinion was that the authorship was collaborative. She paid him for his words. And then had he known about laws of the time and copyright, he would have sued her to have more credit for, you know, what she said and for using what he had written, oh my God. which is wild. And she had paid him $375, which I think is half of what she was paid to write this piece. Then we get to Robert Carringer. He claims, and I think this is the story we need to focus on, right? The first two drafts were written exclusively by Herman J. Mankiewicz, but there were about five drafts that followed, and Herman was working on another film called Comrade X. Hmm. So Orson had to be the one making those changes because Herman wasn't around. Herman J. Mankiewicz wrote this big, sprawling draft, which I think you see in the movie, in Mank, you see this big, dense script. But then in the third draft, there were all these changes and details that were made. Orson Welles completely reshaped and condensed the entire breakfast scene that has all these, you know, different cuts and really cool flashbacks in it. And he was the one who gave it this elliptical style and really changed the character development of Charles Foster Kane. So that's what I choose to believe. I think it is a combination. We really only see the first draft or maybe the first two Mm -hmm. in Mank. So it's hard to say, you know, how it evolves after the fact. But it's kind of interesting that Wells is working on something else in the beginning, then that by the end of everything, Mank has moved on, basically, and Orson is still working on fine-tuning or maybe even changing pretty significantly Citizen Kane. I think that Citizen Kane is the best script of any Orson Welles movie. And that's because of Mank. Like their collaboration Mm -hmm. is what makes that script special and important. And I think that a lot of times multiple people will work on scripts and it's 
the collaboration and the different writing styles that really make it what it is. It's not one or the other. So I think that balance is what's important. Mm -hmm. So another part of Raising Cain discusses auteur theory, which in short is kind of what the film industry became in terms of in the studio era, studios hired a bunch of writers, actors, etc. and kind of owned them via contracts to only work for them. And that transitioned into today where we have, you know, actors working for multiple companies based on the projects alone and getting to jump between studios. But she kind of talks about auteur theory, which are the filmmakers having total control over their projects, which obviously relates to Orson Welles. And then later on, Hitchcock is an example. Kubrick. I think a good thing to note here, too, is that she was also working in a time when film and film criticism were both old boys clubs and she's a woman coming into the space and wants to make her opinions known and Mm -hmm. but at the same time I think she almost used Orson Welles as this punching bag for auteur theory she didn't get her point across the Mm -hmm. first time so she tried to use Orson Welles to get it across the second time and it just to me is a crash and burn piece of scholarship if you can even call it that so in a way she was raising Cain herself which is a phrase referencing Cain from the Bible but in a different context entirely raising Cain's (laughs) is a fried chicken (laughs) business which has such good food my god and this is where we would go on campus all the time (laughs) it's so funny too because I definitely knew about raising Cain's the chicken place before I knew about Pauline Kale maybe at all and (laughs) maybe that's really bad to admit but I think one thing I really want to do like when I'm able to actually go home again and be in a place where there is a Raising Cane's I would love to go and get a box combo sub (laughs) and my extra sauce for the coleslaw and watch Citizen Kane and Mank (laughs) or go into a Raising Cane's eat and then also have a copy of Raising Cane and reading and then take a picture in front of the sign (laughs) we can do that when the world is back to normal I think it's time that we actually get into Mank. We've like finally, finally made it. General reactions. What did you think? Did it live up to the hype? Is it what you expected? Tell me everything. This is so complicated. I feel like I never am this way with movies. Like I either like them or I don't. This one was different. I did really like it a lot. It did live up to my hype, but it was completely unexpected. I feel like that only happens when I go to a movie completely blind and I haven't watched trailers or anything. But this, I went in and I thought, okay, this is going to be about raising Kane. It's going to be a lot of wells. And it was not at all. It was a much deeper analysis. And it. I found it to be very sad in a way that I was not expecting at all. And the first time I saw it, and I was wrestling with all these emotions, and then the second time I saw it, it just lit up. How did you feel? So looking back, the first thing I texted you after I saw this was, that was not what I expected, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Definitely not anything Fincher has done before. And I think my expectations were largely based on what David Fincher has made before, Mm -hmm. which in terms of Fincher's usual thriller plots Mm -hmm. is not what Mank is at all. You know, in some different way, yes. But I think the way he tackles history here is nothing like he's done before. I almost didn't 
didn't see it as a movie in a way the first time I saw it because it was just so much knowledge. The first time I saw it, I had actually the same reaction that Sean Fennessy at The Ringer said that he had, which was you arrive at Victorville, you kind of get this exposition a little bit and you meet Gary Oldman's Herman Mankiewicz. And I remember thinking, oh man, I don't know if making a movie about writing is going to work for me. I don't know if it's flashy or cinematic or beautiful enough to make a film about. And then the flashbacks happened and I was like, okay, this is the world I want to live in. I do agree with you that it is so different from what Fincher has made in the sense that it's not a thriller. It's not a Gone Girl. It's not Seven. I think if you go into this one thinking it's going to be Seven or it's going to be Gone Girl, you're going to be very disappointed. It's not even Curious Case of Benjamin Button. No. Which is like in any level of what he's made, it is not that. No. It's so complicated. I would actually pair this one with The Social Network. And the reason I would do that is because I think that Fincher is very interested in what happens to a person when they get power or when they don't and how they're controlled or not controlled by others and by what is in their Mm -hmm. life. And I think that that is what, when you peel back the layers of Mank, what you start to see. And that I think fits nicely with Fincher's other works. But on the surface, it is really different and it feels sentimental and it feels like this study of, yeah, how lonely you can feel in your life, especially near the mm-hmm. end or, you know, later on in your career. I think in a deeper analysis of what Fincher has made, all of his films are based around a central character and either how they react or are influenced by their surroundings. And I think that's definitely what Mank is. How he breaks down Herman Mankiewicz's life and alcoholism and his relationship with all these people and his writing and how he was adored. From my first viewing, I didn't like the scene headings. I think there were so many. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) you're going to make some little women comment about flashbacks and that. (laughs) But it was kind of hard to place yourself. There's just so much happening. I wasn't going to remember what year that last scene heading said. If it was 1932, 1934, 1940, 1941, it's just passed by the time the next one happens. But it felt confusing to me. What about it felt confusing? Like you think it would be confusing without the headings or you just think that like the structure itself with all the flashbacks was confusing? I think if you have a film that you constantly need to be reminding people where you are, that I think it's not really using the power of cinema, which should be doing that for you. There should be other ways of telling us where we are, not just... Just by a scene heading. Yeah. So I think like one of the things that didn't work for me as well, like the scene headings, you are jumping around to so many different locations and times. It's like sometimes you'll be in 1932, sometimes you'll be in 1934, like, and they go back and forth in an interesting way mm-hmm. that I think tries to mirror what Citizen Kane does with its structure. The other thing I will say that like the scene headings, I don't love when movies do this. And this was like something that was kind of funny to me is that in a movie that takes place in a different time time period with real people. I think sometimes directors or screenwriters, they do this thing where they're like, and now Herman J. Mankiewicz walks into the room. And now this is Marion Davies. And they have this way of introducing the characters that I think is a little silly sometimes, but I do think it worked in the sense Mm -hmm. that it really did help place you where you needed to be in the story and who the characters were and what they were doing at the time. Because like we mentioned earlier, there's a ton of history. And I think most people who turn this on on Netflix aren't going to know who William Randolph Hearst or Marion Davies are and what their influence Mm -hmm. was and what was going on with the studios. I do think like 
it was guiding the audience in a way that I wasn't expecting Fincher to do. And I was wondering if it was just he's such a detail oriented, like anal director mm-hmm. that he felt the need to yeah. put those things in there in that way. Probably. How do you think audiences will respond to this? Like if you're just turning it on on Netflix, do you think people will watch it? What do you think they'll think? It's definitely going to be mixed with audiences. I think this is a hard movie to watch on your couch and not be distracted by. And also partly because I think the cinematography is amazing. And it's shot so much like old Hollywood films. And it's so sad that people will have to experience this on their TVs at home. Mm -hmm. I think a percentage of people are going to be lost and completely bored by this. I think some, whether they know the history or not, will be completely engrossed by what's happening and love every second even if it's just in how he presents the characters and throwing it back to you know Clark Gable and Greta Garbo and Charlie Chaplin who make uncredited appearances in the film do you think there's going to be a split do you think it's pretty much like critical appraise by film people and hate by large audiences I think that the hatred which we can get to is coming from people who simply I really do find it confounding As an Orson Welles fan, Orson Welles does not need me to defend him. The work stands up for itself. And furthermore, Mank is not about Orson Welles. It's just not. It is about a very insidious industry and politics and so much more than Wells. And honestly, these people that I see on Twitter who are just trying to, you know, attack people who like this movie because they want to prove how much they like Wells. I'm just like, Wells doesn't need you. And that's not what this is about. I I really, I find it boring. Anyway, that's one population who doesn't like it. I think though regular audiences, I don't know if they'll make it through. There's a good portion of people who will watch this and maybe won't know anything about it who will find it riveting and will find it a really insightful portrait of what's happening right now in the world. I think you will have people like that, but I think you'll have people who won't make it through or who are unfortunately deterred by the black and white. Part of me says it's too long, and I think that's the part that wants to enjoy a movie and feels like it drags a little bit. But then another part of me is like, wow, he's trying to capture all of this in two hours. And there's a line in the movie which relates to the larger film itself, Mank. Mm -hmm. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a passing remark but that's what's happening and it's so hard to navigate all of these details and I think it's done well so I'm very middle ground on this I did not off both times I watched this Um, I do have excuses, but I think that just shows that I can relate to both sides of the coin. Yeah, the sleep thing. I mean, it's a barrier. (laughs) This is one that I think like really would have benefited from being in the theater. What I love about having this on at home is that I really needed subtitles. Early on, I kept rewinding to hear what a character said, and I just left them on, and it does help a lot. Mm -hmm. Just with certain words or phrases, there are so many one-liners in this movie. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a collection of these one-line punches. Mm -hmm. There were different parts where I found myself reading the subtitles when Marion Davies is speaking and it was like, I just wanted to watch Amanda Seyfried perform and I like needed to look away from reading at that point. But again, pluses and minuses to watching it at home Mm -hmm. versus on the big screen. I really love the script. I think that they... Mm -hmm. 
capture the wit of the time and specifically of Herman Mankiewicz and the type of writer that he was through the script. It's very quippy. It has a lot of great one-liners, like you said. And having the subtitles on, it was so fun to follow along and get to experience the script in that way. I think, too, what's cool is you can pause it and you can rewind if you miss something or if you watch Citizen Kane and you want to try to pick up on little things that they put in that are direct references to Citizen Kane and you're like oh I need Mm -hmm. to pause that and see if that's what I actually think it is so many that was cool so I mentioned this quickly earlier but Mank the film really isn't concerned with the production of Citizen Kane it's largely about the writing and the final 60 days before Mank's first draft is due which is kind of an interesting way of making this movie seeing as the fact that it's about the film itself so then with the scene headings the film switches between two time periods it's from the early 30s when Herman J. Mankiewicz met Marion Davies and William Hurst and Mayer and developed those relationships and then present day is 1940 when he's propositioned by Wells to write Citizen Kane. One thing that really helped me when I was watching this I realized that in the second viewing I stopped viewing the flashbacks as flashbacks I viewed them almost as like the central narrative, seeing it as not that William Randolph Hearst and Louis B. Mayer and Marion Davies were these characters from Herman's past. I almost viewed it as what was going mm-hmm. on in real time as opposed to a flashback. And that for me was helpful in thinking of not necessarily where it fit chronologically, but how what is happening there is actually what's central to the story, not what's happening with Herman in Victorville. The writing itself for me, those scenes, while I found them interesting didn't work for me as well as the scenes at San Simeon which were my favorites or at MGM focusing in on those scenes what's going on with Hearst and what's going on with the 1934 gubernatorial election made it such a rich experience for me because I was like oh this is what it's about it's not about Wells it is about politics and studios and power in a similar way to Citizen Kane Rosebud is this iconic line and it's this thing in Citizen Kane where you can say the point of it is Rosebud or Rosebud is just part of Citizen Kane and there's so much more to it. The Rosebud of Mank, you can like pay attention to the Wells part or you can pay attention to the core part of the Rosebud is the parable of the organ grinder's monkey and how that ties in. So I'm going to stop there and then we'll do more when I get to analysis. And really the only mention of Rosebud in Mank is in some passing joke between Joe and Herman when they're Mm -hmm. just kind of chatting about the movie, which is so interesting being that Citizen Kane's structure revolves around this one word, Rosebud. And that's why we have Citizen Kane. I watched this. It was honestly a very endearing interview with Tom Pelfrey, who plays Joe Mankiewicz. And he was just so excited that he got to say Rosebud in a movie, like that that was something (laughs) that he got to do. And I was like, oh my God, that's that is really cool when you think about it that way. Yeah. My only issue between the two time periods is that they're so close together and the filmmaking, the cinematography doesn't change. Mm -hmm. You don't get this like glossy black and white flashback as like a very explicit way of telling you, oh, we're going back in time. So the characters look the same Mm -hmm. and it's not until the very end when she shows up that I realized the only time we see her in present day is 
once at the very end when she comes to Victorville to talk to Herman. And it was like, whoa, we've seen her so much in this movie, mm-hmm. but it's in this pastime, which, as you said, you start to see as like the main time period yeah. for this film, not in a flashback sort of way. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. towards the end, that's the only thing that kind of felt disorienting. Mm-hmm. Quick background on the film. We mentioned that David Fincher directed. His late father wrote the script. Interesting fact about this is that, you know, he's been working on this for so long. Mm -hmm. This film was supposed to be made in the 90s, and it wasn't until David Fincher took this over that it actually got made. So who knows how many directors had been attached to the script before David Fincher came along. Which is weird because if his dad wrote the script and this is his only script to date because Jack was a journalist, you know, why wasn't he like, oh, son, you know, make this movie of mine (laughs) or the other way around. Yeah. And I think David Fincher tried to, but, you know, it's expensive. It's black and white. It's a period film. All these traits Mm -hmm. of a film that are huge barriers, I think, to studios for giving this kind of money to a director. What I want to point out that is just so spooky to me is that I learned that it was originally supposed to be Kevin Spacey and Jodie Foster. Huh? Crazy. (laughs) I mean, at risk of getting in trouble, I will say, I think Kevin Spacey would have worked as Mank. Back in like American Beauty Day. Yeah. Yeah. Jodie Foster in what I'm assuming is the Marion Davies part, I am (laughs) completely perplexed by. And I like Jodie Foster. I just, that's just the wrong choice. Yeah, I don't know about her. I do agree. (laughs) And I think you started to mention here is that Mank is such a special film in a way that I think it only could have been made now with David Fincher's history of all of these successful films that he's made, Mm -hmm. venturing into television with Netflix on multiple projects. You know, this point in time is the only time that this could have been made. Yeah. And I know I've brought this up before, but when I I went to New York Film Festival and saw Marriage Story. I remember Noah Baumbach before the screening, he gave this big thank you to Netflix and he said, like, Netflix is the place right now for filmmakers to make what they want to make. And I think the fact that David Fincher is making this here, especially with the conversation that we had on our mini episode about HBO Max and Warner Brothers and Netflix and everything like that, of where are filmmakers going to go to make what they want to make? And is it Netflix? So continuing with other crew members, we have Eric Messerschmidt as cinematographer. He kind of has an interesting history. He's also worked with David Fincher before on Gone Girl and then Mindhunter. So you mentioned you really like the cinematography. Is that the element that really stood out to you as your favorite craft component of it? I think the fact that it's reminiscent of old Hollywood films and of Citizen Kane where they use this deep focus which hadn't been used so often before. I think it's so exemplary here. Mm -hmm. I think the sound is also done really well. I mean, the costumes are incredible here. Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies. Just, I think there are a lot of components that really work here. Mm -hmm. Do you have any favorites? I would say, I think the cinematography is really beautiful. There is part of me that thinks it's too digital and I wish it was shot on film instead. That definitely was like part of my experience, but I did think it was really beautiful. I love the callbacks to old films like I love the darkened fade outs. I did like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score. I forgot that they had done the soundtrack for this because it was just so unlike Social Network. But again, it mirrored those old Hollywood films and the sounds that you would kind of expect Mm -hmm. to hear from a 1940s film. 
Yeah, and I like too how they recorded it on old microphones that they would have used back then to make the sound match. Hmm, that's cool. One thing about the screenplay that I am curious about, Jack Fincher has the screenwriter credit, but Eric Roth helped out. So I'm mm-hmm. really curious what those changes are. Is this another layer to Wells Mankiewicz? Now it's Fincher, Roth, and we're going to get <laughs> another film <laughs> called Roth <laughs> in 20 years. Racing Roth. Yeah, but I'm curious because the script is so fascinating of just how perfectly it plays today. And I think part of that is just that issues like this will always be timely because we haven't learned from our past, but also it just felt so spot on for 2020. So in terms of the cast, now that we mentioned all of these names so many times, hopefully (laughs) they'll stick. As Herman Mankiewicz, we have Gary Oldman. Amanda Seyfried plays Marion Davies. Charles Dance, who was Tywin on Game of Thrones, plays William Randolph Hearst. Tom Burke, your favorite. (laughs) My guy from the souvenir. Plays Orson Welles. Lily Collins, who apparently has a really great deal with Netflix, is Rita Anderson. She's Herman's typist while he's at Victorville. He kind of narrates to her and she writes the whole script down. You mentioned Arliss Howard plays Louis B. Mayer. Tom Pelfrey plays Joe Mankiewicz. And then Tuppence Middleton plays Sarah Mankiewicz, also known as Poor Sarah. We're going to start using Poor Sarah about like random people now. <laughs> Is she poor Sarah only because she has to take care of Herman all the time? Yeah. And what a mess he is as a as an alcoholic, basically. Not what you want to be called. Like if someone was calling me poor Sophia because of my husband, who was just a complete derelict, <laughs> I would be I would be very unhappy. So I think it's safe to say that Amanda Seyfried is both of our standouts. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. I loved her. Any scene she was in, I just wanted more of her the entire time. She doesn't have this huge overstated performance, though. Mm -mm. And I think later in the Oscar season, we'll have to come back to the supporting actress category because I think she's in the lead right now. I watched an interview with her where she was talking about Marion Davies and the interviewer asked her, like, if you could talk to Marion Davies about Mank, what would you hope she gets out of it? And this almost made me cry. It was just so moving. She's just like, I hope that she thinks I'm funny. Like, I hope that she laughs because like a huge part of Marion Davies and her career that was kind of squashed by Hearst and all these men in her life and their power was that she couldn't do the comedy roles that she wanted. And I think that Mm -hmm. Amanda definitely does bring that charm and humor to this Marion Davies performance. And I hope that people who might watch this but haven't seen a Marion Davies film will learn more about her and will be more interested in her life. I think when we're introduced to her in the film does a really good job of this on capitalizing on the comedy Mm -hmm. of what she wanted to be. You know, we have a low angle shot and she's on this stake about to burn Mm -hmm. filming some other film, but her and Herman just go through this comedic banter back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was a perfect way of showing what she wanted to be and really her, her person behind the scenes. And it's interesting too that you know the first shot of her that we get like you said is she's about to be burned at the stake in a movie that's on purpose (laughs) (laughs) were there other performances that you really enjoyed or maybe ones that you didn't and we can dive into those I mean Arliss as mayor is so well done Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, is very over the top. But that's, again, the perspective that he's trying to shed light on in this movie. And you want to hate him. So it works really well. I think the surprise appearance by Bill Nye oh is my fun. God. It's very short. There's really nothing to it mm-hmm. apart from the fact that he's up in St. Clair. But I was like, that's Bill Nye. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't recognize him the first time I saw it. I was like, he looks so familiar. Who is that actor? And then I saw that it was Bill Nye. I agree with you about Arliss Howard. I thought he was great as Louis B. Mayer. I think if he maybe had one more scene, I think he'd be a serious contender for Best Supporting Actor. But I do think that list is kind of wide open. I mean, we know that the Trial of Chicago 7, those actors are all going to be in supporting. But... I think Mm -hmm. for the most part, I mean, it's such a weird year that I think if the Academy does respond to this movie, I think that he's one that we could maybe see. I know we have One Night in Miami up there as Mm -hmm. well, potentially to Five Bloods. I think just overall, the supporting characters and the roles are done really well. There's really no bad performance. Even Lily Collins here is pretty prominent in her role, Mm -hmm. and she does a great job. I loved Charles Dance as William Randolph Hearst. Mm -hmm. He's not in it a ton, but his... His voice is just aristocratic. Something about his presence is so perfect for that character. I thought that Tuppence Middleton was great as Sarah. Mm-hmm. I really like didn't know much about this actress besides that she has a great great English name that I do love. (laughs) I think what's interesting about Joe Mankiewicz, so Tom Pelfrey's performance, is that at this point Joe Mankiewicz wasn't really anybody big, but then he goes on to make one of our favorite movies, All About Eve. He wins back-to-back Best Director and Best Screenplay Oscars for A Letter to Three Wives and All About Eve. Yeah, and we had done some history for All About Eve. I know that (laughs) Hasn't happened yet. Another lost episode. (laughs) The quick biography here is that Herman, as an alcoholic, was kind of a washed up writer in Hollywood. And Joe eventually outshined him and was way more awarded. Okay, so I think it's time to talk about Tom Burke. (laughs) He only has a couple scenes. I feel so bad saying this. You've come around to my perspective from The Souvenir as No, well. no, no. I, I love him in The Souvenir still. It's still a problem that very much exists in my life. But I think Orson Welles is just such a towering figure that it's really hard to play him. And I think he did do a really good job. And he did a good job, I think, coming close to getting the voice. Orson Welles' voice is one of the most iconic and maybe the best voice of all time. It's definitely in the conversation mm-hmm. if you made a ranking. But my issue with Welles wasn't an issue with Tom Burke, it was that, and I know I'm not alone in this because Cam Collins in his review in Rolling Stone also said this. To me, Tom Burke didn't look like Orson Welles. He looked like David Fincher. (laughs) And I couldn't get it out of my head in a way where I was like, is this, you know, when you watch a Fincher movie, you're like, this is on purpose. Why is this happening this way? Is Fincher trying to comment that he's the Wells in this situation? Or is that just wrong? (laughs) I kind of see that. I definitely thought the goatee was uncomfortable to look at. It's kind of like an Austin Powers mole situation. Like, ooh, did not look good on him. I think he has a fine performance. Again, it's a small one. In the opening credits, Amanda Seyfried is first on the list, and Tom Burke is pretty far down. Mm -hmm. Also, I just think the cape that he wears in the (laughs) hospital scene is just so dramatic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's... 
Well, we can jump on the analysis part a little bit here, but one thing that Fincher does that I find very interesting throughout the film is that the first time we're introduced to Marion, she's up high. She's higher up than Mankiewicz. The first time we're introduced to William Randolph Hearst, he's up higher than Mankiewicz. Like you have this high, low thing going on in the way that it's shot that is really mm-hmm. cool to me and is definitely a commentary on power and where they were at the time and who has ultimate control. The thing with Orson Welles, though, is that he almost is like this caped crusader of sorts like this specter Mm -hmm. that's coming in and it's kind of like whispering (laughs) in his ear like he's almost like a ghost or an otherworldly presence and I think that that ties in nicely with the way that we think about Wells but also it makes the Wells scenes trickier to parse through. Tom Burke to me just like and I I like him a lot but he doesn't strike me as like a very tall man like maybe six feet Uh even I don't know I need to look up his height but (laughs) in this movie he seems towering and I think that that's a direct you know that's because of Orson Welles. He's also 39. Does that seem old or young? um, The fact that Orson Welles was 24 and he's so much older older he still kind of looks like him I think the thing too with like the whole Fincher appearance thing was that to me Tom Burke looks more like Orson Welles in real life than in this movie I think a comment on the casting is that in multiple articles that I've read they had comparison photos of the characters and their actor counterparts and they were pretty decently cast yeah I think Charles Dance was amazing even Amanda Seyfried so I talked a lot about how I loved the San Simeon scenes what scenes did you really like I think the dinner scene is obviously the climax which comes very late in the film Mm -hmm. and it's so extravagant it's literally this circus costume dinner that Herman shows up to and it's supposed to mirror the scene in Citizen Kane when they're also eating at the table Mm -hmm. and they have these dancers come in and I think that was done really well and then there's another scene when Herman and Marion are walking around San Simeon Mm -hmm. and they go by the zoo and they you know they walk walk by this fountain and Fincher includes his CGI here with these animals (laughs) but also with the fire in the big ballroom and it was like why again this like odd use of CGI we knew it was coming it always comes back for him one scene that I found very harrowing was the conversation where they're talking about Hitler and socialism Mm -hmm. oh my god that's probably my favorite conversation in the entire film which also takes place in that same ballroom Mm mm-hmm You can kind of see the same setup. They just move the room around. The conversation between socialism and communism is great. The writing is just spot on. I wrote down a couple of lines that I think you could take directly from this movie and put them in 2020 and people would not know the difference of what time period Mm -hmm. you're talking about. Totally. So one thing is like this can't last. You can't take a man like that seriously. Speaking of socialists and then like a workforce for free. And this is after, of course, that scene with mayor when he cuts the salaries Mm -hmm. the people who count in california won't let it that was like when i heard that i was like oh my god no (laughs) no thank you and then of course when Marion says I heard pops on the phone when and then she talks about when he's picking the president's cabinet and she says it's like they were casting a movie I mean it was so true and I didn't really understand the first time because she's like I don't know what I'm saying Mm -hmm. and she walks out but it's like she is Herman in that moment because she's speaking the absolute truth and that happens today I mean you mentioned before how Hearst employed Marion as the president of Cosmopolitan Pictures Mm -hmm. and like oh there's a family who's hiring the other other members of their family to be the higher members in all these different cabinets hmm sounds vaguely familiar Uh, no sure does and the idea still today of course that 
socialist politicians are not taken seriously or looked upon fondly by mainstream media groups and platforms and they want someone who is more palatable so many amazing parallels here yeah that's why this was my standout Mm -hmm. another fun few moments in the film are when they're mentioning old films that these production companies have made Mm -hmm. my favorite is when they mention wizard of oz and mgm had this like troubled past with wizard of oz because it was an expensive film at the time to make Mm -hmm. and it took 20 years for it to make back its budget of around like three million but in this moment when joe mentions it herman goes that goddamn movie again because they're just so sick (laughs) (laughs) that made me laugh oh my god and like all of the puns Loire and Leroy I was Uh, nerding out to all of that I loved all the language puns and just yeah how that movie just kept coming back up I mean there's so many references to Cervantes Mm -hmm. and Shakespeare and Another one of mine here is very late in the film at the dinner party. They're mentioning how Thalberg didn't pick Marion to be in Marie Antoinette. Mm-hmm. And in an aside, Herman is like, Marie Antoinette, Marion Antoinette, Marionette. And that is so chilling because Marion is this marionette yeah. to Hearst. Oh, yeah, it I so loved much. that too. <laughs> I like too how there were really so many good sequences and so many good lines. I really like the walk and talk when you're getting introduced to Louis B. Mayer. Him just explaining like his philosophy and MGM mm-hmm. and everything like that. And he says, this is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies and don't let anybody tell you different. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> such a gut punch. Yeah, that was amazing. Another thing I really love is that I think these references were far more accessible to audiences than the references in I'm thinking of ending things where you just have these like long drawn out conversations where you're Mm -hmm. talking about Pauline Kale again and I think that these references that are used are just like more fun and they're worked in in a way that is more accessible to viewers totally it's less highbrow in a way and I think that's why maybe I like this more than I'm thinking of ending things because even though I've done a lot of research I think it's easier to understand even though Mm -hmm. I still think it's a different type of movie where it's a lot of singular things put together but also something that's broken down really well you mentioned marionette and i think too what really stuck with me was this idea of ownership in a way that wasn't about wells and mankiewicz creative control Mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't about them and i think when you watch it through that perspective it lights up in different ways so when you're thinking about marion davies and the projects she got to do or didn't get to do and how norma shearer was the one who got to be in marie antoinette because she was the Thalberg's wife but then the picture didn't work out because Thalberg had just died but then also the idea of Shelley Metcalf in the movie who makes these basically fake news attack ads because he says you know they gave me a chance to direct and this is another way that this theme of the present day comes in and how it perfectly mirrors the time that we're in right now but also again it's about people like this whose lives come to tragic ends because of how they try to do things to work their way up. But in reality, that wasn't even his idea in the first place. It was Herman who told it to Thalberg. And this is kind of where we get into the the false truths of this story mm-hmm. and history, mm-hmm. because some of these things didn't really happen. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned the cutthroat nature of show business and the downfall of Shelley in this film. 
who, again, wasn't a real character. He was based on a different character who actually did direct these TV spots, but ended up having a really successful career in Hollywood and didn't feel guilted by what he was doing. Mm -hmm. But whether it's true or not, still relevant today. Another thing about this, this is based on real people, but Fincher Sr. and David Fincher or Eric Roth, however you choose to interpret who did what in the story, saw this Raising Cain story and thought that's one thing but the more interesting thing here is what was going on with Hearst and Mankiewicz and Marion Davies and the 1934 gubernatorial election which I didn't know anything about before watching this movie nothing not at all nope I mean the fact that Upton Sinclair had run multiple times you know Hearst's role in all of this and him running yeah it was all news to me Mm -hmm. but it was fun to learn about I mentioned earlier the rosebud of the story, the organ grinder's monkey. And I think that this ties mm-hmm. in perfectly with this idea that I had of, you know, it being about power and who controls what. And it is that when William Randolph Hearst says to Herman Mankiewicz, after he's had this drunken, debaucherous night where he just lets him continue on, lets him set himself on fire here, I think Louis B. Mayer is like shocked that he lets him continue. And Hearst has this smirk on his face like, no, I'm going to let you do this to yourself. He talks about the parable. Like, have you ever heard the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? And he says, every time I do decide to dance, every time. And then he opens the door and we get this shot that you see Mink just standing, looking like this small man in this doorway of this massive Mm -hmm. castle. He says he must play whether he wishes to or not. And that is the crux of the movie (laughs) right there. That's it. Yeah, It's a huge moment, but it, it comes across as just another scene in the film. In a way, in the fact that it's not this thrilling, huge climax, but it is in the scheme of things and what it means to these characters. It's understated. It's the climax of the film, but it's, yeah, it's not this thrilling box cutter sequence in Gone Girl. Which I think is why I was initially underwhelmed. It was like, oh, that was it. Mm -hmm. But once you dissect everything, it's like, oh, yeah, Yeah. it's grand. Another part from the scene is when Herman Mankiewicz finishes his speech and throws up (laughs) on the floor and everybody runs out. And he says, the white wine came up with the fish, which one is... Something that actually happened. It was at Arthur Hornblow Jr.'s party, but Herman had to run away because he threw up and he came back and said this line. The other side to this is that when David Fincher released the stills from this movie and the first look at the score, it was at the white wine came up with a fish.com. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> right? I did not put that I'm together. I'm surprised you didn't connect that. No, right? I forgot I all about Ugh. that. Because I searched the line and I was like, there has to have been some connection or yeah. what does this mean? And it followed with the story, but it also came up with that site. And I was like, oh my gosh, Ugh, yes. I love that so much. One thing that I love <laughs> is when we meet William Randolph Hearst and he says, I intend to make pictures with the help of real literary minds. What do studios give us? Gangster flicks and zanies. It was so funny to me because it reminded me at first of Martin Scorsese critiquing Marvel. And then he <laughs> throws in the bit about gangster movies. And I was like, but wait, Martin Scorsese makes gangster movies. <laughs> gangster movies were much different back in the 20s and 30s totally oh for sure compared to Scorsese (laughs) 
I also love when Hausman, when they're in Victorville, says, this story is so scattered, I'm afraid they'll need a roadmap. One, that applies to Citizen Kane. But <laughs> yes. two, it goes back to your roadmap about the headings of where we're going. Exactly. And Herman's early line from this movie about the narrative being like a cinnamon roll that you have to unwrap. Mm -hmm. There's no straight line. It very much applies in that you go back and forth a lot and it's done well, but you really have to pay attention. I also love the scene after he gambles $24,000 on the election. And it's the way that that's edited, that sequence, I thought was really cool. And it reminded me a lot of when I was watching the election returns come in for several days (laughs) this time. (laughs) Well, it also reminded me of Home Alone, where you have this like over the shoulder shot and this like amateur edit but basically that's what happened during the scene where like all of these photos are mm-hmm. edited over his shoulder and it's a really cool setup okay so just a few citizen kane comparisons the ice sculpture at the gop party direct mm-hmm. reference to the ice sculptures in citizen kane and i love when that melted what the elephant looked like that was good you mentioned the blocking at the dining room table i think the the big one that i noticed of course was the snow globe and the bottle when herman drops the bottle out of his hand from the bed that's mm-hmm. like a direct reference to the snow globe in citizen kane falling out of his hand the other one i have is a bit of a stretch so bear with me here but the part when joe and herman are talking about rosebud we get like a medium long shot of them sitting in the chairs and on the back of the chairs it looks like there are roses interesting i didn't see that potentially maybe <laughs> So looping back, I do want to talk a little bit about the ending. So I don't love the scene with the fight with Orson Welles. It wasn't that interesting to me. And it also, I find the whole ending to this movie just very sad. I don't want people to be turned off by this movie because they think that it's critiquing Orson Welles because I just don't really think that's what it's doing. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason why, besides all the stuff that we mentioned with the analysis and what the major themes for us were and how they came up in the story, but it's the ending and what is so painful painful to me about the ending is it ends with Orson Welles leaving after this fight about credit and you see Rita Alexander and we have a time jump to the Oscars where we see Mm Citizen Kane win its only Oscar, and it was the shared Oscar between Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz. And then after the ceremony, neither of them were there. So they have these little bits where we hear Orson over the radio. He's in Brazil Mm -hmm. working on a film. And Herman, you see him, his last line of the movie is, how's that? And he just says it in a way that is so, it feels so bitter. We end the film in a way that I think is different from a lot of Fincher films on this still of Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz holding his Oscar and he doesn't have this heroic end. He's not painted out to be this hero. He died from complications from alcoholism at 55. He never went on Mm -hmm. to win another Oscar or have this storied career. That instead belonged to his brother. But we know from history that Orson Welles went on to become Orson Welles. Like he made Mm -hmm. all of these films and regardless of what people I think say about what this movie says about him, I just, I encourage people to look at it a little bit differently and to try to think about what it's saying instead of, if you want to learn about Orson Welles, look at his work. It's all right there. And you can learn what an incredible filmmaker he was and how much he influenced film way more mm-hmm. than Pauline Kael did, way more than Herman Mankiewicz ever did, more than David Fincher ever will. That's just the truth of it all. This movie is called Mank and it ends on this very sad and lonely note that he didn't go on to do anything else. This was his coda. Yeah. I mean, 
he just had such a perilous journey in Hollywood. And I think what's notable here is that when they won the Oscar, Herman's name is placed before Orson. And apparently someone had witnessed Orson Welles circling Herman's name and putting it before his on the listing. And that's why the order is as such at the Academy Awards when they announced the winner. Wow. Which who knows, because right. that, you know, yeah. paints Orson in such a different light to what this whole movie is trying to accomplish and villainizing him. So not going too deep into that because it's just like too convoluted. I don't know if it does villainize him entirely. I think you can definitely read it that way and that's totally valid. When I watched it, I thought, okay, this paints a really bad portrait first of Thalberg and of Mayer. They are the villains of the story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also because I chose to view the flashbacks as the central part. The Wells part for me it's kind of like, I'm not going to spoil The Sopranos, but it reminds me of in The Sopranos how a key argument to what actually happened in the ending is that there are POV shots from Tony's perspective. And mm-hmm. in Mank, we can read that a lot of it, especially the Victorville scenes and even the flashbacks are from Herman Mankiewicz's perspective. Orson Welles was this mm-hmm. wonderkind who hadn't been around, who was going to ruin his career. But the reality of it was that Orson was a giant who wasn't a villain at all, who ends up becoming the hero. I think like the short point of it is that they're trying to give Mankiewicz more credit and then I guess if you want to interpret it as villainizing or not that's kind of up to the viewer yeah it's just trying to show that Herman did have a really big part in this and that their debacle over who owned more of it this is where it came from a little while ago we did our Fincher retrospective if you haven't listened yet listen to that it's a mega episode it's pretty long we go through all of his movies except for Mank of course where does this fall in your rankings you don't have to give it a number but like a tier A, tier B, tier C. So it's in my lower half. I think that being said, Fincher just has so many great films, but it's also such a different kind of movie. Am I gonna go rewatch this offhand in the future? I don't know. It's not like a slight to him necessarily. Mm -hmm. Where is it in terms of you and your tier? I really like it. I think it's probably in my top four or five. Okay, so top half. Wow. I think I'll return to it. I already want to watch it again to see what else I missed, but it's an interesting evolution for Fincher. I feel like I see it as that. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to see how it's received, of course, with the Academy, but also with people in like 10 years. I'm really interested to see how it ages, if it has a similar tale, like the social network where people are like, we didn't celebrate this enough. This was a masterpiece. Or if it's just totally forgotten. We'll see. I kind of have a fundamental problem with movie, you're going to hate this, with movies where <laughs> multiple viewings are required or necessary. <laughs> Because I think you should be able to enjoy and understand a film alone from one viewing. And I think lately we've had a couple of these instances where you really need to watch it a couple times to get everything out of it. And yes, I think part of the fun with Mank is that each viewing you get, you're going to get something new from it. Mm -hmm. But you also need those viewings to understand it. So I liked it. I didn't love it. But I think that's part of where my reception of the movie comes from. Do you hate me more now? No, I don't hate you. (laughs) I think that it makes sense. I just think that I do prefer movies that you can return to and get something different from them every time. Like I think that's why I like Kubrick and Altman. And I actually think I prefer films like that, which is so interesting that we're different on that because I love rewatching movies and you 
don't. But see, like Citizen Kane, you can watch once and I think you can get it. Well, there's a difference too between like getting it and like getting it. Right. (laughs) Okay, last thing. How do you think this will do with the Academy? I think it's going to be a heavily nominated movie that really has potential to win a lot here. I think if we went through all 23 categories right now, we would at least name half that nominations are like almost for sure, which is crazy. I agree. I think it's going to be really celebrated in that sense. What I am worried about is it's going to be like a Citizen Kane or like the Irishman where it wins one and gets nominated for nine or ten or however many. (sighs) And and the only winner we have is Amanda Seyfried, which I'm fine with if she's the winner, but I think we could also foresee that. So I think she wins right now. I would bet $24,000 that (laughs) it would be in these categories. I think picture is a shoe in supporting actress for sure director yes or no i think so maybe not for win i think the conversation for director is interesting because i think right now the top two slots prognosticators are saying are david fincher and chloe zhao two very different Mm -hmm. filmmakers very different stages of their careers who knows what's going to happen with that but i think he'll get in at least especially this year i agree again wins are going to be very different but nominations i think picture director actor supporting actress cinematography costume design maybe even makeup and hairstyling i think editing is close production design sound and then screenplay score and they also are submitting a best original song did you see that what so this variety article it says trent Reznor Mm -hmm. and atticus ross are joining the original song oscar race with a stealth entry david venture's mank features If Only You Could Save Me, a song written by the film's composers. Did not expect that. No, me either. I still think Best Picture is going to be Trial of the Chicago 7. I think after I've seen this now... I don't think it has as big of a chance of winning picture than I had initially hoped it would. And I'm not sure about Nomadland either. This category for sure is one that I'm really perplexed by. Well, I think that's all we're covering for Mank right now. I think we'll be talking about it a lot more (laughs) as the award season goes on, but I'm excited by it. And I do think, you know, you should watch it. Thank you so much for tuning in. I think, yes, you should watch this movie. Give it a chance. I think there's so much to love in it and to take from it. I think doing all this research for it has been so hectic, but so rewarding. And in my appreciation for this film and for Citizen Kane, and also I recommend watching Citizen Kane if you haven't already. And I hope all of this made sense. Yeah, I hope so too. We parsed through so much information. And speaking of that, definitely check out TCM. Also the podcast, You Must Remember This by Karina Longworth and her series on MGM. Those details are really cool if you do want to know more about this time period and more about the big players at the time. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be doing a Best Picture nominee throwback to 2010. This is the year that the King Speech won. Yes, we will get into all of that drama. (laughs) We're excited to have... As a guest, Kevin Jacobson, who is a writer for Gold Derby and Awards Watch and also hosts his own film podcast called And the Runner Up Is, where he goes over many years, many categories of Oscar nominations throughout history. So I definitely recommend going to his podcast. I'm sure we'll talk about more about this when he's on next week, but I am very excited to talk about all of these 10 nominees and the fact that it's been 10 years since these films have come out and kind of where we are and how we still think about them. And I think too, not having the Oscars on time this year, it'll be fun to have Kevin and do a little 
10 year anniversary celebration and talk about what they got right and what they didn't. Definitely. So again, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe out there and wear your masks. Thank you so much, everyone. Stay safe and wear your masks. We'll see you next time.